You might have heard midterm elections are only a few months off. Questions about security and integrity of the ballot casting and counting process, they persist. For what the threats actually are and what officials might be able to do to mitigate them, Chief Information Security Officer at Critical Insight, Mike Hamilton. Mike, good to have you back. Um, it's good to be back. Thank you very much for asking me on. And what are the principal threats in reality to the elections that are coming up or to any election anywhere? As you've pointed out, this is a local matter, but yet it has national implication. It does. A lot of people will, you know, talk cyber, 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 you know, and that's our biggest threat. That's a bit of a red herring. You know, hacking a voting machine is only possible if you have physical access to it. And, you know, really, and this is with respect to statewide exercise that I've been involved in, the biggest issue right now that people are concerned about is disinformation, is just the ability to exploit the gullibility of Americans and send them to the wrong place or say something about, you know, the election that is patently untrue, and a number of people will believe that. And so I think that that is what the federal government and state governments and, frankly, the counties that conduct elections are most fixated on right now is how to fight back against disinformation. Well, disinformation, you mean about candidates or about the voting process itself? Anything, right? I mean, just all of the wild things that people throw out there, there's a fraction of the population that's going to believe anything you hang in front of them that confirms their pre-existing worldview, and it works. All right. Is there anything people can do about that, though? I mean, cybersecurity, you can point to specific measures and so on, but disinformation is pretty much outside the control of, well, of anybody I've talked to so far. Well, there's interesting story in the news yesterday about, uh, I believe, the state of Colorado, and there is a pot of grant money that is specifically for protecting the integrity of our elections. And in Colorado, what they wanted to do was get that grant funding applied to having a bunch of people watching social media so that they could immediately counter disinformation when it pops up. And because of competition with law enforcement over grant funding, they were starved of the funds. So this really is the thing that I think states are really trying to find a solution to. And what it involves is constantly monitoring and then pushing back as soon as you see it. All right. And what about some of the other physical threats that can happen? We've seen wildfires. Gosh, where you are on the West Coast up and down the coast, moving inland, wildfires could conceivably burn up a box of ballots, right? Sure. Wildfires, floods could take out, you know, the election infrastructure. I think one of the things that you see popping up in the media more and more is the lack of election professionals and volunteers because they're just being threatened all the time. You know, there are death threats and, you know, these get very personal. And a lot of people are just throwing up their hands and saying, I'm just not going to do this. And so without people to run the elections and with the threat of those natural disasters, we're in a bit of a precarious position here with a lack of real fallback plans for this. Right. It's a matter of disaster recovery. And if a paper ballot has been mailed in or dropped into a ballot box in person on Election Day, whatever the means, is there a way to somehow mitigate the loss, physical loss, in case of a fire or flood, such as, say, electronically recording as you count or something like that? Well, there's always, well, let's have a do-over, right? I mean, if if ballots are destroyed, you know, through a natural disaster, I think, you know, everybody's going to be okay with re-voting. 
you know, but frankly, if you see these things coming, and especially when we're talking about election professionals and volunteers that are being threatened and just running away from all of this, I mean, you know, there's a signal there that you can use to plan. And one of the ways that we vote is called UOCAVA voting. That's the Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act. And that is routinely done. It's always been done for military. It's a method that's there, but we are not considering using something like that as a fallback plan, a plan B. And part of the reason for that is the academic community, when you say the words vote and computer in the same sentence, they recoil in horror and explode into a ball of flame. So in my view, the academic community needs to get over it. There's no such thing as perfect security. There's risk management, okay? Everybody drives a car. A meteorite might hit your car and yet you still drive. There are ways to mitigate the risk around chicanery happening if you decide your fallback plan is to use this method that's always been used for overseas military. Am I making sense? Yeah, we're speaking with Mike Hamilton, by the way. He's Chief Information Security Officer at Critical Insight and former CISO for the city of Seattle. So how would that work in terms of a local application of it for people that are not overseas? What does it look like process-wise? Well, frankly, the method that I've seen looks a lot like DocuSign. You know, it's not online voting. It's basically marking a document, having that document then transmitted over to the voting jurisdiction where it will be printed and counted. There's a paper trail. There's not a lot of reason for people to freak out about this. And yet, you know, we can't get over this hump. And getting back to the issue of campaign workers being harassed and threatened and so forth, Mm -hmm. is your observation that this happens at the voting place or elsewhere just by people that know they are also voting officials or volunteers. No, it's, it's happening now. There is a county in Texas that just had all the election workers quit. They're sick of the threats. So there's also going to be, you know, the weirdo monitors that frankly intimidate voters if you show up to vote. And again, if you had some way of marking a ballot that doesn't include going and standing in line for four, six, eight hours and being in possibly intimidated by people walking around with guns, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Because I tend to be a proponent of voting in person on Election Day. That's just my old-fashioned bias, I guess. And I've never waited more than 20 or 25 minutes, at least where I've lived. But recently, in the county I live in, everything went normally. The count was kind of, at least for one of the races, kind of got loused up. But they're having a recount, and nobody's really seriously questioning it. And it's a good government type of area. But at the polling place, there was this gantlet of people handing you posters that you had to walk through a narrow way. And again, people in this situation, they were all well-intentioned. But I can see where a situation having people giving you materials right up to the moment you enter the door and not having some kind of a perimeter around the place could be intimidating. It is. And there is a perimeter restriction there. And it sounds like that may have been violated. I've also read that one of the ways that we're going to work to make this go smoothly is to deploy more law enforcement to polling places to make sure that, you know, intimidation is called out and that there is a perimeter and people are behind, you know, where they're supposed to be because, yeah, you shouldn't be pelted by posters and, you know, political messaging as you walk into the door. Yeah. And with respect to what you mentioned earlier, say a DocuSign type of system where there's a verifiable, traceable element in the transmission of that paper, the Census Bureau was successful in using internet polling 
by everyone receiving that chose to do it that way and not have an enumerator come or fill out a form with a unique identifier sent only to that person, a one-time, one-shot barcode type of situation. seems like there's something to learn from that process. Yeah, I think there's an analogy to be made there. And frankly, the whole standing in line to vote thing is pretty 20th century, if not 19th century. And I've been cautioned that Estonia is not really the best model to use. But for the longest time, Estonia has only done their voting this way. So, you know, I think that evaluating different fallback methods, different ways that we can pull off an election that address some of the threats that we're looking at now, which include natural disasters, includes threats of violence. We ought to be looking at the whole portfolio of the things that we can bring to bear to pull off elections and make sure that the people that are eligible to vote can actually vote. Anything you feel the federal government could do to encourage this because voting is a matter of locals. Yeah, well, I actually think that if we were going to apply this domestically and not apply this only to overseas voters and military and things like that, I think it would require legislation. I think they would need to amend the act. All right. Mike Hamilton is Chief Information Security Officer at Critical Insight, former CISO of Seattle. Always good to talk with you. Thanks a lot, Tom. Good to talk to you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits 
helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. 
Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, 
there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.